Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. You just found out that your film got into Sundance, didn't you? Yes. Well, you probably didn't just find out, but you it was just <laughs> made public. <laughs> yep, it was just made public. I'd known for two weeks before that. and um, But, yeah, but it's funny. When it was announced, even though I'd known for two weeks, um, I had a little bit of a panic attack. Like, it was very – had a lot of anxiety. And I was very excited, but all these emails started coming in and everything sort of changed. Very interesting phenomenon. It's Tuesday in Melbourne, and indeed the Southern Hemisphere, which means it's probably Monday when I record this and when I say these words, and by probably I mean it is because I know what day it is because I'm recording it, and uh, a whole different year when this interview was recorded, which I, I guess isn't such a big deal because the current year is only three weeks old if you're listening to this episode as it comes out. If not, uh, how many weeks old is the year now? Uh and if you'd like to listen to my other episode from this very young year, or indeed episodes, depending on once again, when you're listening to it, uh, any of the previous 78 episodes of Coming Up Next, as it stands right now, <laughs> uh, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and at www.comingupnext.com.au, where you can find links to all those spaces, all the iTunes and Stitchers and Podbeans. And you know what? It's a streamlined way for you to subscribe, rate, and review this weekly podcast. And my guest this week for episode numero 79 of Coming Up Next is an actor-turned-director whose foray into filmmaking has an original origin story, to say the least. She's made short films with an amazing irreverence, won Tropfest with her film Lemonade Stand, directed commercials, a series for Amazon TV, which she's just been nominated for a Director's Guild Award for. And right now, her debut film, Fun Mum Dinner, is playing at the holy grail of independent cinema, the Sundance Film Festival. The Ramble Room welcomes to the Chat Cave this week on Coming Up Next, Alethea Jones. What do you mean everything sort of changed? It just, it, I mean, honestly, just energetically, it felt like a little change, but but physically more meetings, like a lot of production companies. I, I do take a bunch of meetings every week here, just general meetings in LA where I'm based, but um, more meetings now. Like I'm, I'm doing four to five a day at the moment and wow. drinks and um, a lot of studios wanting to be involved and meetings with new, a new type of person which is a financier like I've never had to meet financiers before and people that are interested in buying the movie and uh so yeah so it's just a different experience this film is uh fun mum dinner uh your debut feature yeah um and you've got a a pretty amazing cast of people uh who who are working who have worked on this with you yeah What's it? What's it kind of been like? Um, you know, even you know, speaking energetically to kind of make that transition uh, to to working somewhere like LA, where you know it really is the kind of top echelon of people working in the industry. 
it, it's funny. It does feel like, oh, for my first feature, I, I had all these amazing casts. Um, but it has been a four-year journey to, to making this feature and being in a position to try and lock some of these people down, like four years of practice pitches almost, like pitches where I have not won the movie and but, but I'm learning as I go. And last year I, I got to direct for Amazon Studios on a kid's show called Gordon McGibbon's Life on Normal Street and they gave me five episodes to direct and I'll tell you the first two episodes I did, I was really shaky and I was very apologetic to my heads of department. Um, you know, they'd present three options for something and I'd think I'd have to pick one of those things as a prop. And they're like, you don't look happy. And I'm like, oh, I just hoped it was a bit bigger. And they're like, say no more. And then the next day they come back with four more larger props. And it's like, oh, I've got to get into this new mindset of not being a scrappy filmmaker. <laughs> uh, so I've been practicing and psyching myself up so that, you know, in the event I got to do something bigger and probably may not fall apart um and then cut to yeah fun mum dinner and uh it all happened very fast there actually wasn't enough time to freak out too much mm. i uh, i i i suppose i can relate to that on one level in the sense that i've just moved to the uk and i was working uh as crew on a on a spielberg film and just kind of, I, I kept having these moments where I was like, where I'd bit walk onto a set and I'd feel like, oh, that's fortunate that that exact prop that is in the script uh, happens to be here or that they were able to find something that was exactly like they had in the script. And it was like, well, no, that's not, it's not yeah. a fortuitous thing. That's, it's all completely intentional and deliberate. We get yeah. so used to as kind of, you know, uh, guerrilla rogue filmmakers um, working with whatever we can beg, borrow, or steal, you get so used to just kind of approximating what you may or may not get. Yeah, yeah, and and usually it works out. Like you sort of fly by the seat of your pants. I really liked that about short filmmaking, and I do kind of miss the irreverence of that and the playfulness of making shorts. It's not as weighted, and you can be really flippant with decisions. And actually in that flippancy you can take these sort of great risks that that can pay off it's really nice to be in those low stakes situations but on what you're saying it's interesting i shadowed on a bunch of australian tv series um shadowed the directors but i would you know you couldn't be there all the time or you'd come two weeks into prep or something um and and i took for granted as well like props would show everybody seemed so calm on set everybody was so good at their jobs the hair, like the actresses would show up in these great outfits and, and I and I would forget too that meetings had been made. It all looked so easy and people are just phoning it in. But it's like, no, they've been talking. <laughs> they've been having a lot of meetings about every detail. Mm, a lot of work goes into kind of every every facet and every corner. Yeah. Um, so you started out as a choreographer and uh, and an actress before you moved into making the films. What was your kind of, uh, I guess, was that something that you were doing through school? Yeah, it all started in school. I was a pretty eccentric kid and I I grew up in um, rural Australia in, in a town called Alstonville and I just realised recently, like, I always wanted to be an actor, but I reckon it was possibly because I just didn't have access to a camera or to any editing facilities in the 80s. 
And there weren't any female directors to even think about a role model or something to aspire to. So I went straight into acting all through primary school and high school. I even got a degree in it. And and at the same time, I was doing these Rocker Steadfords at high school, which were just... Did you do Rocker Steadfords? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure. I, I don't know what a Rocker Steadford is. Oh. It did like uh, school plays and um, talent shows and things like that. Where did you grow up? Uh, Melbourne. Okay, Melbourne had some great Rocker Steadfords. Oh, yeah, maybe. I, I went to a fairly sheltered Jewish pri- private school, so perhaps we uh, we were, we didn't have them. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I grew up watching them. We we had them uh, in the countryside, but there were some schools in my area that would go to Sydney and compete as well. So they'd do the regional competition, but they'd be like, we're going to Sydney as well, and they'd compete all over again against the big Sydney schools. So it was a very glamorous kind of thing. It was like 100 kids on stage from each school telling a story to music for seven minutes, and you could do whatever you wanted in that seven minutes. You could oh, tell wow. Wuthering Heights or something about the drought or an issue. Um, there was a great Melbourne's um, Michael Jackson and they won the national competition that year. So it was, it was just, it was a big deal and it was very glamorous. And I, I've recently showed some American friends, some Rocker Steadfords on YouTube and they were like, Oh, now we understand where Baz Luhrmann comes from. Now we get <laughs> how Australian, like, cause Australians are so sort of globally known as being rough and no frills and, but then there's this Baz Luhrmann kind of strictly ballroom, kooky, queen of the desert feel, and it's very ostentatious. And yeah, so I came up doing Rocker Steadfords and choreographing those, and that was that was fun, and that taught me a lot how to work with people and think differently with movement on mass and stuff. Do you remember the first time that you performed in front of people, or maybe with your family, or something like that? that did kind of give you that uh, that thrust and that push to pursue it as a kind of life endeavor? That's interesting. That's a great question. Uh, the first time I performed, which was super fun, was um, in year one uh, in, a, in a school play called Toy Tiger and Mr. Elf, which is a, a controversial memory because the, the little boy that played, I played Toy Tiger and the little boy, um, that played Mr. Elf. Well, he's a man now, funnily enough, but he remembers <laughs> it as Mr. Elf and Toy Tiger. And anyway, that's the first time I um, for a big crowd and it was super fun. Um, and it was narrated by Ringo Starr. It was on a record. And we, we performed <coughs> to his voice. <laughs> I don't know. But it was just a natural, like it was just a given. I was just that, that that's all I had. Uh, and I, yeah, it was just never for a second considered that I wouldn't be an actor. I thought I wanted, to, I thought I would go to NIDA and be like in Neighbours or something. That was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get into NIDA. Sorry? I did not get into NIDA, obviously, but I went to another acting school. And so once you kind of uh, were going down that garden path, uh, despite the fact that you perhaps weren't headed directly for Neighbours, what was it that kind of shifted you into the filmmaking space? It's a strange little story. I graduated from acting school and and at acting school they got me choreographing a lot. So I was working with, now I was working with a lot of people, like 
the last thing I did for them was I worked with 600 performers in like a mini Olympic opening ceremony of sorts before a show. And so I was sort of starting to really work. Let's stop. I don't know. I was, I was doing that on the side and, and then I moved to Sydney and a few weeks after moving to Sydney and graduating, I got an agent and then my sister died in a car accident and I was just, this is 2001, I was very devastated um, and I just sort of stopped wanting to act and, and a friend took me to church and for two years I became a born-again Christian and I'm not that anymore. There are, there's a lot of things I couldn't reconcile with the Christian faith, but it was a very special time for me for that two years. And it was there that I started directing. Um, they, <laughs> they invited me within weeks of starting to go to the church. They invited me to a play. They were rehearsing a play and they're like, you're an actor. Why don't you come and watch the rehearsal? And I thought that sounded terrible, but I went and I was sitting in the auditorium on my own watching these non-actors performing and they were in a bar scene and the director just turned to me in the middle of the scene and he's like, I don't know how to fix the scene. And, and he asked if I could help him and I knew that I couldn't, um, I couldn't do actions or objectives with these actors because they weren't, they weren't real actors. Um, so I got up on the stage and started doing animal work with them. Uh, I said to the, there was an enthusiastic character and I said, well, just think of a puppy, like how does a puppy move? How do they breathe? Where do their eyes go? And there was a grumpy character. And I'm like, well, you're a grizzly bear. And then the middle guy was like, you think of, he was just the straight guy. And I was like, well, you'd be like a young noble lion and hold yourself like that. And they did it and they loved it and the scene worked. And the director kind of exited the process. He didn't really want to be directing. And I ended up directing that play. It was the first thing I directed. And I ended up doing all the plays for that church. And they were an affiliate of the Hillsong church. And so thousands of people were coming to these plays and they're the first people that gave me a, a camera and they taught me how to edit. And I started getting very heavily involved in, in these productions and in the creative side. So that's how I, it got started. And it was a very special time with, and they taught me about leadership and, yeah, I, but yeah, I just, I couldn't stay. Um, but because of you know, fundamental core beliefs that I, I couldn't shake. Um, but it, that's how I started directing. It's quite a, it's quite a interesting and, and certainly unique passage, <laughs> uh, into, into the world of filmmaking. Yeah, it, it's, it's a strange experience for sure, but it is something that, that was pretty special and yeah. Yeah, super strange. <laughs> what were, I suppose, what were, were you brought up uh, in a Catholic or Christian way uh, in through your childhood? A little bit, um, but I, my mum is really open-minded, so she sort of had these sort of Christian beliefs, but we never went to church. She she meditated. She told me about Buddhism. She had a, a really great sort of well-rounded respect for all of the faiths and she's a bit of a little bit of a tripper in terms of she's really open-minded but so I, I suppose I did have a sort of a predisposition for being drawn to something like that I, I yeah I, I had a, I had a great time <laughs> great people too I'm still friends with some of them I got dumped by a lot of them when I stopped being a Christian but um the ones that stayed friends are like 
you know, the, the good sort. There's a good sort of every religion, a, a good, a really beautiful, anyone who devotes their life to something spiritual is, I think, a very special person. So I still have some really lovely friends from that time. Mm, what What was it, I suppose, in that period of, I, I imagine, very deep grief that kind of drew you towards uh, becoming a born-again Christian? Yeah, totally. I cried a lot. I mean, I cried... I remember even, so I went to film school after I left the church. I had a year off um, between church and film school. And then I was still crying at film school. And I remember doing the writing classes and just bawling, like something would come up and I'd talk, like they'd ask about your most painful memory and I'd talk about my sister's car accident. So it was a good five years after my sister died where, where I would I could drop, cry at the drop of a hat and feel incredibly lonely and incredibly broken so after you after you kind of exited the church and you had a year off you went to vca which is one of the best film schools in australia um and i suppose that was where you really kind of honed your chops and and started taking filmmaking so it was was the plan to kind of make films that you were going to act in or was it always just to become a kind of cut and dry filmmaker always to become a cut and dry filmmaker. I, in, in that year off, I went home to Northern New South Wales and I knew a guy that ran an ad agency and he um, let me hang around the agency and shadow and some stuff. And then he gave me a corporate video to direct. And it was um, on that corporate video that the cinematographer just completely dominated me and he dominated the shoot and I completely lost my voice on the shoot. I would ask him to shoot certain angles and he'd be like, yeah, you can't get that because I don't have the right lens and it's just not the right. And like he was just started directing the actors and I just lost, I, I had no footing. I, I had no technical, even though I'd learnt the basics at, film, at, at church uh, <laughs> with my crew, um, I then that's what made me decide to go to film school because I, I didn't, I didn't want to ever feel that way again. And I, I got into film school. It's funny when I got in, someone said to me, look, if you're going to go for VCA, you've got to know who Akira Kurosawa is. And if you talk about him in your interview, you'll get in. And so I studied up. I didn't know who Kurosawa was. So I watched all his movies and uh, I was ready to go. And when, when uh, they asked me what my favourite film was, I remember the moment of going to say Seven Samurai and I just said, um, parenthood. <laughs> and they're like, what? And all the panel just looked at each other like, what the fuck? And one of them's like, yeah, no, I know parenthood. That's that Steve Martin movie. Why do you like that? And I sort of talked about parenthood and Bullets Over Broadway was another favorite movie of mine at the time. And um, But, yeah, I was a little, yeah, I, I got in. Uh, I got in. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. When people ask me what my favorite films are, I include both Home Alone one and two in my um in, in my list of favorite films. Um, I think Wayne's World two is better than Wayne's World one. Yeah, that's the sequel feelings about stuff. That's a good shout. The uh, you don't get a naked Indian uh, in a dream sequence in the first one. Searching no. for Jim Morrison. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or a roadie who tells the same Ozzy Osbourne story to everyone he meets. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love it. Look, maybe I know that film very well. Yes. Um, 
So how important do you think it is to, uh, I, I suppose, really, you know, uh, be authentic with yourself in those kind of situations, probably in any situation in life, but, you know, you were kind of given this hot tip, you know, about, you know, this filmmaker who, you know, will give you a kind of a fast track into the school that you wanted to get to and yet you kind of chose to disregard that and, you know, honour who you are. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's incredibly important, isn't it? You don't ever want to find yourself out of context with something. Like if I, I don't, I didn't, if, if they weren't going to let me in because I liked those broader sort of bigger comedies then that wasn't the right place for me. And that wasn't a conscious thought. It, it's just, I could just talk more passionately about those movies. Um, yeah, it's incredibly important. There's been times where I've been in meetings and and it's so tempting because over here in LA, they're so fluent in actors and producers and films. And when I first started coming out, I remember someone said to me, oh, she's kind of an Emma Stone character. And I was like, who's Emma Stone? And they said, "Are you kidding? You don't you don't know who she is." And this is in 2012, but she'd still done Easy A at that stage, and maybe she'd even done The Help at that stage, which is ridiculous. But, um, <laughs> and so it gets easy to think of lying. Of uh, it, it's a temptation in a meeting to to just go, "Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, Emma Stone, or if you, whatever it is." But I've been rewarded for being honest which is great. Like one time someone said to me that I was in a meeting with, I think it was Indian Paintbrush, which is a company that does a lot of the Wes Anderson movies. And they were talking about this film and they were so proud of it. And I'd had a week of just knowing, not knowing any films that anyone had spoken about and feeling really exposed. And I, I remember thinking, should I just agree and tell them the film was great? They had posters up about it all over their office and I couldn't do it. I just said, I'm sorry, I haven't seen the movie yet. And, and he goes, it hasn't been released yet. That's okay. And I was like, oh, wow. Like the one time I came close to sort of spinning some bullshit in a meeting, thank God I didn't. Yeah. So I've just never I've just never come close to not being authentic with that stuff. You mm. can get really burnt. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, I reckon you could get really burnt if, if, if you're fake in this town. Mm. One of the interesting kind of points of contention – that I speak to people who, like me, have been to film school is um, the kind of argument for going to film school versus getting a practical experience or a practical education, going and working on set. Uh, I, I suppose as someone who has, you know, been working fairly consistently as a director and has been on a a lot of sets, uh, what would your kind of point b what 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 value did you personally take from going to vca yeah it's it's a great question and it's a discussion i've had a lot i don't think people need to go to film school but you need to have a certain personality type the film school thing for me it was very important it was just psychological for me to put three years aside and immerse myself in that stuff i don't remember really consciously learning too much i guess i learned how to edit but it was my classmates. It was my peers that I went through with. I learned so much more from, actually I can think of every, everyone in my class. There were, you know, my class fluctuated over the three years, but there were roughly 10 to 12 people in my class. And each one of them was just spectacular and they helped me and taught me stuff. Um, so it was invaluable, but you don't need it at all. Like I, I, I didn't learn much 
from the classes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but, but having said that, I was the worst filmmaker in my class. I'm not saying I was great when I went. I made really terrible short films, like the worst. I can't watch them. I never entered film festivals with them. Um, but I learned so much more from, you know, I went through with really great filmmakers like Jonathan Alfterhide and Kitty Green and um, another great filmmaker, Ben Plaza, who, who was just so good and, and taught me heaps. But, yeah. What do you think? What do you tell people? Yeah. <laughs> uh... Yeah, I I am of a similar kind of belief. I don't think you need to go to film school, but I guess the things that I learned were from the practical application of, you know, um, what we were, quote unquote, being taught. That uh, one of the teachers that I had there, who was uh, Richard Franklin, he sort of said, "You um, you can't teach someone how to direct, but you can learn." And that was Ooh. kind of that was kind of very true in the sense that he was a director who'd made, you know, lots of lots of great films. Well, uh, arguably, um, but during the kind of exploitation era, he was one of the kind of top filmmakers. You know, Tarantino references his work as uh, one of the bigger filmmakers of that period of time. Um, yeah. So he knew he knew how to direct, but he plain out said, "I can't teach you how to direct. You can only really learn from doing it." Uh, and you know, I likened it. I, someone did sort of ask me that recently, and I kind of likened it to swimming. You know, you can read about swimming, but until you jump in the pool, yeah, you, you know, you're not really going to be able to say that you're a swimmer. And that's what I kind of tried to do outside of film school. I. I didn't make any Screen Australia funded shorts. They were all really low budget and just made with our own money, usually made with the person who wrote the script's money. Um, and I preferred doing something lean and mean and just churning them out, just making stuff and making mistakes and what's next and let me apply, let me remember how fresh, how, how fresh that mistake is and, and how painful it is to watch that mistake. <laughs> um, and let me make sure that I don't do that again in the next one. And so I, I do believe in, that's why I was talking earlier about the irreverence of short films. Like just, I miss that. But yeah, I, I think people should try and make as much as possible. It all gets very serious when you start it's introducing a lot of money to into it, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And development and stuff. Just make it. Just shoot stuff. Mm. Um, it's hard, I know. I, I, yeah, I was very lucky I didn't mean to develop this sort of model, but yeah, straight out of film school, Rick Davies brought me a script um, and his savings, he was in the saddle club uh, as an actor and he, he wanted to make his money good because uh, he felt like it was such easy money to be in this kids series and not really say much. So he was like, I want to, I want to make this short film that I've written. Can you direct it? And here is the money to direct. Here's the money to make it. Wow! And that turned into when the wind changes, which is still my favorite, one of my favorite shorts, and it's opened a lot of doors for me in LA. And then, and then the next two shorts I made were written by actors who had their savings that they wanted to make a short, and I directed it and put some of my money into. It's quite a uh, fortuitous kind of um, role that you were that you kind of fell into, but. At the same time, you know, you 
you, you have to be prepared to make the most of those opportunities. So, um, you know, you when the wind changes uh, is is a really really great short film as a lemonade stand and Dave's dead. Um, oh, thank. Which are you know, and, and you've made a bunch of other shorts that I haven't um, haven't seen, but there's that kind of thread of, uh, to use your word, irreverence through them, and and they're really. Um, really well kind of crafted and I don't think that you would have continued. You know, you can say that the first one was kind of a lucky chance, although I don't know the circumstances, but beyond that, you know, you have to prove that you're kind of up to the task. So, I think it was funny that the acting degree has certainly continued to inform my direction so that I do see a correlation between looking after my actors always and, and them having... Um, good experiences on my sets and then, then they'll come and bring me another script that they've written. So Luke Ryan had been in Cop Hard and felt relatively looked after and, and approached me to direct Dave's Dead after having seen Cop Hard and When the Wind Changes. So, yeah, it's, they, they have a nice time, I think. How did you feel? You, you sort of said that things started to open for you with uh, When the Wind Changes, um, when, when that sort of became, when that got into the public uh, yeah. sphere. And I imagine that that was kind of tenfold with Lemonade Stand um, as well, winning Tropfest. What was the, how did you kind of notice things starting to shift and change with those experiences? Well, the films got cheaper to make. When the Wind Changes cost a lot and I had to edit it myself. I, I, and I remember crying whilst I was editing it because I'm not very technical. Uh, but no one would help us. No one believed in the script uh, and, and I hadn't proven myself as a director, so it was very hard to get people to come on board. So either we got very inexperienced people to do it or we had to pay them, and it, it cost us. It cost Rick a lot. But then Dave's Dead was like a quarter or a sixth of the budget of When the Wind Changes. So we made we made Dave's Dead, and then um, when I was in post on Dave's Dead, Lemonade Stand came to me and Tim Potter said, it's a trop fest film. And I said, well, I don't make trop. I don't want to do a trop fest movie, but I read it anyway. And I was like, oh, this isn't your typical trop fest movie. Not that I believe there is such a thing anymore, by the way, um, a typical trop fest film. But um, so I made that whilst I was in post. So I was in post on two shorts at the same time uh, at one stage, but yeah, they got cheaper. And, but then interestingly, after Lemonade Stand, I started doing commercials and it got hard all over again because you have to prove yourself professionally now people are giving you a budget and they're sizing you up and they're being a bit rough and it's like I sort of liken it to being in the ocean. Like at film school you're in the shallows with your classmates and it's easy and the water's just lapping at your ankles and then you go out deeper and then you just spend the next, it feels like the next 15 years getting smacked in the face by whitewash <laughs> and you just want to get out to the yachts. Like you just want to get onto a fucking yacht and, and have a luxury life and it's like I can't get there and now I look around and I feel like um, last year I would have said that I was sort of now just slightly past still in the whitewash but I can't touch the sand anymore and it's really hard to swim and you've got to build those muscles but now just after the Sundance announcement maybe this is what I was saying about it's a different energy I think I'm in a new level like I'm still very far from the yacht but the breakers are behind me and there's a riptide it's like there's an undercurrent it's like oh my god I thought it was about to get easier that I'm sort of starting to prove myself but it's a whole new set of demands that are based that are sort of 
put upon you and it's confusing. Like I was driving to a screening last night of my movie where all of the agents and all of the cast were going to see it and I got a, uh, my left eye was twitching and I got a nosebleed out of my right nostril and I was like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> like <laughs> it's just a screening. But then you realise all these people are going to recommend you for more work and it just you get these different tiers of exposure and it's really nothing at the end of the day. I should get more Zen and I should start meditating, but it feels like pressure. Even though I'm sitting here just talking to you, I feel like I can feel those ties out there with what's happening. And I don't know. It's strange. I'm in a strange place. (laughs) You are in Los Angeles. (laughs) I know. I usually steer clear of all that stuff though. I don't really go out much. I just sort of stay in with my dogs and watch TV. How was the screening? It went well. Oh, my God. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because this film's different. This is not like my short films. And I have been lamenting that. Um, it's very. It's more polished. We shot it in 19 days, which is nothing for Good a big grief. ensemble. I know, right? That is fast. And with such a big cast, when you know, you're a director too. You, you realise... Oh, I've got five people in average on each, in each scene, about five people or more or less sometimes. Um, you have to get the eye line for each person and each eye line is at least a 20-minute setup. So Molly Shannon talks to three different people in her scene. I've got to get her eye line to those people. It took so long and it was so comprehensive. And to do it in 19 days, though, was it was really distressing and and I'm very proud of what we achieved under those circumstances, but you can't stand in front of an audience and scream all of the excuses. Yeah. So I've been pretty anxious about it, and I was very surprised that it got into Sundance, actually. It didn't feel like an artistic kind of movie, but it's good. It's been received really well. It's like a, a nice warm hug of a movie. It's funny and it's understated and nostalgic feeling, but it's certainly not what I imagined my first feature would be. So that's been interesting. What did you imagine your first feature would be? Imagine it would be something more whimsical and and more creative. Um, And everybody wants their first feature to be a real breakout, like a real announcement to the industry. And then you're away and then your next movie, Star Wars. Like (laughs) they're they're the main stories that you hear. And it's, I'm so stoked that I got to work with this cast. I can't believe how much I learned. Like, I would do it all over again, but it's just, it's not going to be anyone's favourite movie and I've had to come to terms with that. Mm. Um, but maybe it will great. open the door to make the next uh, one that could be everyone's favourite movie. Absolutely. I have no doubt that I will be able to make more something more that I, that I really want to make that that has my stamp on it a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's been, um, I, I am very grateful for this experience, but it, it's been, um, oh my God, like just such a baptism of fire. I got the script, I read the script and was shooting it six weeks later. Like it was such a fast process. Yeah, wow. It, it just went so far. That's why I, yeah, that's why I like being here, that the money, there's money around to do stuff and you can just like, just like the short films, just make stuff. Rather than wait, I, I just wanted to do stuff. So what was, on that kind of note, what was your experience like of working in the Australian film and TV industry? Um, 
Uh, I had a great time. I was working with, at the time, they were called Jungle Boys and now they're called Jungle and they embraced me and they gave me so many opportunities and they really got behind me. But generally I, I, I even was told by a producer, it's not my turn. He's like, well, it's not your turn yet to, to get into television. And I thought that was a bit... I just, I, I think that art is a meritocracy. I think if if you're good, you should get a go rather than wait in line. Um, there just wasn't enough work for all of these great filmmakers and, and all my friends were twiddling their thumbs and trying to make content and, of course, there's no money to do it um, and we're all waiting for the same money or um, for those bigger projects, for those features. And TV just seemed like it was impossible to break into, just impossible. So I thought I'd give LA a go and try and just get some runs on the board. And so at what point did you did you make the move? How long ago was that? <laughs> so I started visiting LA in 2012 after the Tropfest Prize. That sent me over and I had no designs to visit LA before that. It was Tropfest that definitely put it in my mind. And I got an agent. So then for, for two years I was directing commercials for Jungle Boys and lecturing at Swinburne. Uh, no, I think I stopped lecturing Swinburne after Tropfest, but I was doing guest lectures every now and then. And then I was visiting LA, like using my commercial money to visit LA and take meetings. And in 2014, my agent in LA just said, he actually literally said, you're giving me, you're giving me blue balls over here, <laughs> like coming over and having these meetings. And then we can't convert them into work because you're disappearing. And People think that you're not serious about the meetings if you don't live here. And um, so I made the move. Like, I just did it. So I did it in 2014. Oh, wow. How, how did you uh, make that transition into the commercial stuff initially? Jungle were great. They, uh, they're people like Trent O'Donnell, who's now over here directing, is the producing director of New Girl. They took me under their wing. They they were very – they built into me a lot. Um, they gave me great producers to help me do pitches. So sometimes every now and then I'd get like usually a feminine hygiene product or yogurt, diet yogurt or something. So sometimes a company would be like, yeah, we're interested in this new director pitching. Um, it took – Jungle had to do a lot of convincing for clients to want me to even pitch but then Jungle threw a lot of resources at helping me win those commercials and they put me with very sharp producers once I won them. I won, I think, four in, in a year or something. And uh, so I do give a lot of credit to people like Jason Burrows at Jungle and Trent O'Donnell taught me a lot about working with stakeholders and clients and agencies um, and, and a lot of the directors at Jungle. Um, we helped each other with our pitches like Abe Forsyth um, helped me a lot and Christian Van Buren uh, from the Bondi hipsters and other things like we all helped each other it's a very special very special organization I liked that they got behind me but on set sometimes the DPs would sort of ignore me or the first ADs found it much more easier to push back with me as a director than than push back to the DP and his crew so that was a little discombobulating um, but that was fun. I'm into it. I'm into the, the more weirdly and roughly I get treated on those low stakes project, the, the better it is because I do want to do studio movies one day. So if I can sort of build my muscles and figure out how to deal with wankers and 
with really inappropriate treatment on those things, then I'll be better positioned for when someone's screaming at me on a huge movie. <laughs> like, because mm. I will cry. I can guarantee you I'm a big sook. <laughs> so I really want to work out those little wrinkles before the stakes get too high. I did see, I was working on, um, I did a few days working on the latest Transformers film and Michael Bay loves to yell at people. Right. My boyfriend um, is a sound editor on all of those Transformers movies and told me as much. Yeah, he's, he, he sort of gives me little pep talks. I'm so gentle in post. He's like, you can be a little stronger. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fuck, I'd never go that far. But yeah, wow, you must have seen some stuff. How was that? What did you learn? Uh, not to yell at people would probably be yeah, the, the main cool. thing <laughs> on that one. Um, I was, I, I only, I literally only did a few days of like this huge battle sequence, which I don't think I'm supposed to talk about because I signed an NDA, but, um, but you know, it's pretty amazing to see through, you know, this kind of educational experience that I'm having at the moment that the kind of consistent theme with all of these directors is their certainty. Um, and I think that's what you're saying is kind of working that muscle to the point where you can be uh, confident in your, enough in yourself to have that level of certainty about the decisions that you're making. Yeah, and also that level of certainty when you know that someone's presented a better option. Mm. Um, but, yeah, um, I, I was... It was the night before shooting my first episode of Gautama, the Amazon series. And I had basically, in the first week of prep, said to the first AD, so we both know I've never done this before. <laughs> like, <laughs> and said, so you're probably more terrified than me at having to work with me, but I welcome you to give me input. Please, please, um, I'll do my best. I'll do all my homework, but please tell me when I'm going off course and and feel free to do that. And he was so relieved. He's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> like I've worked with too many first timers and, and they can really fuck it up when they pretend they know everything. Um, and I asked him on the eve of shooting, I said, what's, give me some advice. Like what's the one bit of advice now? And he said to me, Joss Whedon told him this when he'd worked with Joss. He said, um, listen to everybody, but know when you're right. And sure enough at the end, towards the end of that first week, um, the DP and I sort of clashed over how, how a sequence of shots would cut together and I was pretty sure I was right and he was like, I don't see it cutting. Um, the script supervisor came up and she's like, it will cut, it will cut very well. Um, and I dug in and, and he kind of dressed me down in front of the whole crew. It was kind of embarrassing. He really patronised me and tried to teach me about editing and eye lines and stuff. And I dug in and we shot the sequence and the AD came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder and he said, no, when you're right. And he's like, you were right then. And, uh, and it's funny that, that that little moment is when the editor got that sequence. He's like, geez, that cuts together beautifully. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> That's the one little part that I dug in on. <laughs> and Nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, but I like that. I do listen to everybody, though. Pe people do find that shocking in America. I am a little more gentle and in um, I like to empower my heads of department. I, I like to come at them. I think this is from my Christian days. Like they taught about leadership through service and they really built that into me as a director. And, and I do serve. I, I try to honor my heads of department and do whatever I can to put them in a position to shine and to be happy in their art. And in America, they're so used to dictators that they're, 
most of them rise up to me and they're like little sunflowers and like more, more, more. But um, some of them mistake that as a weakness or as, you know, not knowing what I want. And that takes a little while to massage that out of them and get them to trust me. But that's fun. I don't mind having that little, I think it's being a female director as well, to be honest. I think that's part of maybe, I don't know, how I've, how I've grown up or something. Maybe, I don't know. It's uh, It seems as though a lot of uh, sets are run from a space of sort of fear and it's like everyone's trying to uh, employ as much damage limitation as possible so that they yes. won't get yelled at as opposed really? to... Well, it's, it sounds to me like you're running your sets from a place of everyone's doing a good job and, you know, let's yeah. let's all work on this collaboratively as opposed to in a kind of dictatorship. 100%. Yeah, joy. I, I want everybody to have fun. As um, someone put it to me recently and I've really grabbed onto the saying, it's not that life's too short, it's life's too long. Life's too long to have a bad time in your job. Yeah. <laughs> like work with shitty people and, and put yourself in, in positions where it's unpleasant. So I, I do first and foremost I believe it's my job as a director to set the tone and to set the atmosphere and, and it's all involves laughter and and joy. I love that. How important is uh is laughter and comedy in life and, and you know, you said the word irreverence a few times throughout this. Well what does that really mean for you? in the context of like, you know, bigger picture sort of conversation, I guess. I guess when we hold things too tightly, it just strangles possibility out of situations. And and, and that's to do with, you're right, in, in, the, in the larger scheme, I don't ever want to be controlling or shut things down. I do believe in possibility presenting itself within each moment. So I'm always looking for that. Um, yeah, I do use irreverent a lot and I use playful. Like I, 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 I mean, and that comes from the cause of the fundamentals of improvisation as well. Like have to be open to possibility and open for, for when ideas present themselves. Know exactly what you want so that when someone comes along and goes, but how about this? You have a point of reference. You can index it against your choice and go, no, that's not as good because of this, this, this. So we have to go with my idea or fuck yeah, that's better, and you're an amazing artist, let's go. And they're like, oh, cool, and then they're bringing more to it. I, I want I want 20 people to put their heads to my film because, I mean, I'm going to look great as the director. Like, So I'm not worried about collecting all those ideas and putting them on the screen. I just want as much possibility as I can get for it to be good. And I think that uh, things become more accessible when you make them when you bring an air of, uh, you know, kind of whimsy or, um, you know, where it's when it's not so serious, you know, it can be underpinned. I went around uh, Australia with uh, Samuel Johnson. He wrote, he unicycled around Australia for breast cancer. Yes, I um, remember sister. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I was with him and um, I was filming it and, um, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest things I learned from him on that was about, being irreverent you know the the kind of the the slogan of the whole event was don't fall into the booby trap be breast aware and it was like it was this really eye-opening kind i was i have very dry sense of humor i don't know if you've noticed or not Um, (laughs) but people often took me very seriously and it was kind of 
uh, I learned the power of, you know, uh, loosening your grip on control in that way by being a bit more fun or being a bit more irreverent um, and saw the effect that it had for him and for me in, in the way that people would open up kind of like flowers, if you like, um, yep. through that kind of gentle touch of not being too serious, but, you know, uh, understanding enough that you're dealing with serious issues. Yes. Yeah. When you create, it's about creating a space, a space for people to sit comfortably and that, that can be, you're right. That, that, that can be a space for, for actors and for, and especially heads of department for me, but, but for anyone, right? Like giving people space and agency to, to be who they are, to grow into who they are. That, I think that's what life's all about, right? Evolving and, and being better. Yeah, totally. And having the flexibility to kind of go with the flow and evolve with something as it kind of grows, I think. Yeah. It's like, and you know, like I've always, I, I get teased about it a little bit. I haven't, I think I got, I got it teased out of me actually, but I did used to say a lot, let's play jazz. Like I'd be on set and I'm like, okay, let's play jazz with this scene. Like, and jazz, right. you know, the, the core principle of jazz is actually incredible technique and learning your scales and your chord progressions and how to jump things along, how to improvise masterfully. And it's that balance. It's that Zen thing of incredible precision, but chaos and letting go and, and following a flow and that's when uh, when good direction can happen um when you can play jazz with with all of the things that are presenting themselves and I'm a little bit wobbly on that still like I just start to get I just started to get good at tv only just and, and it's like oh fuck a feature now I'm gonna make a mess of this but you know you, you get stronger each time and you get to perfect it hopefully how do you see success? I'm sure as, you know, in 2005 when you embarked on your VCA film school journey um, or even when you finished drama school, you may have looked at what you've achieved to date and looked at that and those sort of would have been pinnacles of success for you. But I get a sense that once you're kind of in that flow, that's not really... Uh, that's that that is no longer the marker of success for you. It's probably a twofold answer. Um, I I I think success is just contentment with my work, and I have known contentment. Like I I do feel content with when the wind changes and Lemonade Stand and Dave's Dead as as flawed and imperfect as they are. I'm so happy with them and what we did. Since then, I, I'm, I haven't been content with my work because it's always been new and I've always had to move on before I can perfect um, anything. So I, I think it's just that's what I'm looking for. Someone asked me the other day if I was just being humble about fun mum dinner, for example. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm, it's it's um, just not my, my true voice. Um, but also, like, when I watch a really beautiful film, at the in the end credits, I, I'll sit there and I'll just go into this reverie, like this sort of. It just feels so spirit. A good movie feels so spiritual to me, and it opens my heart. And I sit there and and it's like, oh God, I want to be part of something like that. That's what I really long to be part of. Just a a good film, and that's what I've always aspired to. A, a fe- making a feature like that, and I don't exactly know what it's like 
what sort of feature that is. I saw a Monster Calls the other night. Have you seen that or heard of it? No, I haven't. It is just so wonderful. It's it's so good. So I saw a Monster Calls and it sent me into that sort of spiritual place. The director is just so good. And I saw that sort of, I think that will be success when I can do something really eclectic and whimsical that I feel content about. Yeah. It's funny the ways that we kind of look at things from the outside and then when you're kind of on the inside of them, it it may not be exactly what you expect. Um, I suppose I say that in reference to having just made a, a, the, the film that you've made, um, but then there's this whole other element of wanting to have job satisfaction. And I'm not saying that I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of satisfaction in what you did, but on a kind of artistic level, that's very different to on a practical level. Yeah, you're right. And there was tremendous satisfaction uh, doing it. But yeah. What were some of the what were some of the biggest, I suppose, challenges that you faced aside from kind of budgetary and time um, in in making the film on a kind of artistic or creative level? You know what I really regret, and it was a challenge for the shoot, was um, the. I wish I went wider with just the lensing of it, with the composition of shots and stuff. Uh, and sometimes I'd be away working with the cast and come back and, and, I mean, we stuck to a very strict shot list, but the train was moving so fast that sometimes I'd come back and go, oh, w- wider than that. And we couldn't go wider because we'd have to light or we'd have to move gear or and we'd just have to shoot it. It was a great challenge working with, particularly with Tony Collette and Adam Scott were in many ways my favourite two to work with because they are just thoroughbreds. They are so good and pure. They're so pure as actors and other cast and myself included, I'm all like, let's play, love me. Like, let's just, (laughs) like, I want you to like me and there's all that going on. Whereas Tony and Adam kind of don't have an ego and they're just what are we doing what's the setup what do you want so it's like oh i've got to dig in and i've got to rise up to meet them they're on a whole new wavelength and that was very special having to dig in and I, i i think i was at my best with those two um and tony was the only one where i i would give her a direction and she'd be like okay all the other cast at various times would be, um, and and rightfully so, some of the best actors I've worked with have been like this where they'll be like, oh, I don't want to do that, can I try this? And you're like, fuck yeah, you can try that. That's even better or whatever. Tony was able to take whatever I asked of her and make it honest and real and just do it. I just was in awe of her and a little scared of her at the start as well. <laughs> like this is my first movie. She, by her coming on board, we got greenlit. It was her name that allowed us to proceed with casting anyone else we wanted. We had to lock in that caliber of actor before I could go for the other cast. And, uh, you know, she's a big deal. So that was hard to overcome, my my fears and insecurities. But it was great, great outcome. How did you work through those, those fears and insecurities? I think, oh, yeah, this goes back to, I think it was that four-year campaign leading up to it. It was the five episodes of the kids' show that I did the year before. It was, I was just, so I really was 
it was a little bit out of my depth, but I was ready to start swimming in that area. Um, so I, I think even though I, like you said, I'd, I'd never jumped in the pool. I, I was kind of, it wasn't that hard. It was, you know, I'd build, been building up to it. Mm. Lots of met- water metaphors between the two of us. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Water's good. Water I actually is hate, good. hate the beach, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the water uh, it has to be either really hot or the water has to be really hot for me to for me to get in um, yeah. and I don't like going on boats no me neither I, I um I grew up near Byron Bay so we're at the we're at Byron and Ballina every day uh, every sorry every weekend and every holidays we'd go away to Yamba and Iluka um, which is I don't know if you know those places but um, so I was a real water baby but for some reason I'm like I'm done I don't I <laughs> It's like telling people you don't like animals by, by me saying, I don't like the beach. People look at me so funny. <laughs> Embarrassed to say it, but I, I just don't like it. Well, at least you own it. <laughs> yeah, I know it. I own it. And I use metaphors of the ocean probably directly in relation to my fear of, of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like swimming in a terrifying ocean. Which would just be any ocean for you. Any. Yeah. Maybe something really calm, like in Greece, would be fun. But even then, I'd be imagining a shark, even if there aren't any. <laughs> so don't swim on the east coast of, of Australia. No, don't swim on any coast. Of don't anywhere. swim on any coast. Just swim in a lake, a lake that doesn't have uh, salmon swimming upstream. Yeah. You know what? Give me a hot tub. I'll hot take tub. a hot tub. Yeah. Cut laps in a hot tub. Well, this has been really, really awesome, uh, and I and I am so grateful for your time. Um, two Antipodeans speaking cross-continent in the Northern Hemisphere. That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah, thank you for having. Me. It's been lovely. I've, I've never, um, I've never joined all of those thoughts together in that way before. So thank you, for, you're a very special person for pulling that all together. Thanks. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. I've just uh, kind of connected your thoughts with my thoughts. Um, and I do have one more thought-provoking sentence, otherwise known as a question, to throw at you before we finish. And it's the same uh, question I end every every interview with, which is, what makes you silly? Ah, <laughs> oh, and I guess you can interpret that anyway, right? I feel uh, like I want to ask you more about what you mean by that yeah that's it's, it's a tempting one but it is grammatically ambiguous on purpose um i'll tell you what makes me silly a i'm going to interpret it as like what makes me giddily happy um i know i could interpret it a few ways but a a, a good cup of tea and a period drama like the crown or downton abbey because I never want to make anything like it as a director, but I find it so wonderfully escapist and calming and relaxing. I even listen to the scores of those things at home. So that and that just makes me so giddy and happy and silly and I and I'm in my pajamas and I'm feeling so much joy. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> what sort of tea? English breakfast, Madura. Right. 
have boxes of it. They don't sell it in America, but I, my friends bring it over for me and my mum sends it. And she writes the date, the expiration, the expiration date in huge texter on the side. Like, I don't know why, but what I've would got happen boxes if you of had, What would happen if you had expired English breakfast tea? No one knows. I, I, uh, I wonder. I, you probably become really unreal and awesome. <laughs> Does it become like brunch tea? Ha! I uh, wish I'd have that. Yeah. That's, I'll think of that later today. I saw um, a trailer for Office Christmas Party, um, and like hours after seeing the trailer for it, it's like a new Seth Rogen movie. Hours after I was doing the washing up, and I was like, out of the blue, I was like, fuck, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> well, I'll be thinking that in a few hours. Like, fuck that brunch line. That was really good. English brunch tea. That was a good one. Um, Here, they don't call it English breakfast tea. They call it builder's tea. Why? I guess because builders drink it. Builders. Man, I tell you what, I've never seen crew get so cranky over a tea table not being um, available to them as they do here. They get really upset if they can't have a cup of tea while they work. That's adorable. Thank you so much, Alethea. I really, really appreciate you uh, doing this with me. I really appreciate you having me thank thank you you're a joy to talk to as are you and good luck with sundance and um, i really look forward to seeing how that all pans out on social media me too